So we are starting a new a new series, and so today I'm just going to introduce introduce it essentially, and yeah, it's it's a it's a seven weeks uh, series. Well, actually, it's a six it's a six week series, but you will hear today a different version of this preach when we go to Central Hub Central. Um, so yeah, it might feel a bit all over the place today. I do apologise, and um, I'm just trying to kind of start start us off really. So this is what we're going to be doing in the, in the lead up to Easter. And um, what do we think this is talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Mountain, wisdom, Jesus. Do, do you know where we'll be looking at then, potentially? Sermon on the Mount. Um, so we, we are, this series is essentially on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in Matthew's Gospel. And it's the longest recorded sermon by Jesus. And um, from it, we've got some incredible sayings. So turn the other cheek. Yeah. Go the extra mile. And stuff like the Beatitudes, which we'll look at today. And just that universally familiar prayer, our Father who art in heaven, which most of us, you know, we, we memorize that at school. So it's a really important and um, just famous, really, isn't it, around the world, some of these things that we get from it. And the sermon, really, is it's very inspiring, but it's very challenging, as we'll see. And um, it's essentially a commentary on Jesus's life. Everything that Jesus talks about is kind of saying, you know, I'm modeling this, but he's also saying to the people listening, this is what it means to follow me. So this is what we'll be doing over the next three months. And I think we're going to be really inspired, but I think we're also going to be really challenged because um, you kind of read this, if, you might, if you've read it recently or familiar with it, you kind of nod in your head, but at some point you stop nodding <laughs> because it's like, oh, okay, do you really mean that? <laughs> um. So um, where is the Sermon on the Mount? So as I said, it's in, it's in Matthew, and it's chapters 5, 6, and 7. So, um, well, feel free to, to get that ready then. Um, and you might also know that Luke's Gospel has its own version, known as the Sermon on the Plain, and it's um, very short and slightly different. So it's just 29 verses, and um, some things are changed, And but this is what we'll be focusing on, just Matthew we might occasionally mention Luke. Um, um, the title, just worth saying, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not actually uh, in the Bible. Um, you might say, well, it's in my Bible. Look, it says Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a heading, isn't it? You know, headings only actually entered the Bible about 100 years ago. So um, the, you know, we actually get the title from a guy um, called Augustine in the 4th century. He, he wrote a commentary on Matthew and, and said, Sermon on the Mount. And then it's just kind of stayed there, really. So um, I want to ask us a question, and I want you to have a think about it with the people around you. And that's, um, if, you do, if you're not familiar with it, that's fine. Maybe people can help you. But what comes to your mind when you think about the Sermon on the Mount? And what do you know about it and how does it make you feel? So I have a couple of minutes and then I just want to hear what you guys come up with. Cool. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, today we, so I'm going to cover the first 20 verses. We won't actually touch on that bit you've just mentioned. 
Jesus does say, doesn't he, at the end of this, that um, I've not come to abolish the law. Yeah, but I've come to fulfill it. And that's really important. As we read this and we do this series, Jesus isn't saying everything that came before was wrong. When he says I've come to fulfill it, he's saying I've come to show you its, its full meaning, essentially. I've come to show you. Um, the, the, I'm, go, I'm going deeper here. I'm, I'm taking you deeper into what was said. And I'm showing you that I essentially am this this what we would call the Torah, you know, the posh word for the laws God gave his people. I'm essentially that to you. Okay, we're going to move on. Thank you. That was all brilliant. I've got a quote for you from C.S. Lewis. He says, um, as to caring for the Sermon of the, on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of the man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So, um, that's C.S. Lewis's take. Um, what do we do with that then? I would say that hopefully what we're going to get from this series is that this, we're going to hopefully disagree with this. We, we understand it. We can sympathize with what he's saying. But these words aren't meant to leave us feeling condemned and like we've been hit in the face of a sledgehammer. Um, you know, and we're not meant to read the Sermon of the Mount like a list of things to do. Here's a list of the things that you should do um, in order to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't intend anything that he's about to say to be a set of rules devoid of relationship with him. Okay. The Sermon on the Mount just, just essentially is going to describe the good fruit that will naturally uh, accompany all of those who are in relationship with and who follow Jesus. Um, it's as simple as that. And I'm saying that there have been different ways of interpreting this sermon. So um, I've kind of lumped them into four ways. So there's despair, kind of what we just talked about, what C.S. Lewis says. So this is the idea that the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to like bring us to our knees uh, in, you know, in realizing our own sinfulness and our inability to do anything. Um. That's the point of the sermon. That's really difficult, isn't it, to maintain? Because Jesus says uh, later on, we'll look at in different weeks. He doesn't say if you give, but he says, oh, when you give. And he doesn't say, oh, if, if, if you get the chance to fast. Jesus says, no, when you fast. So there is actually an expectation. So I don't think despair is too helpful. And then another view is private. So that this, is, this, doesn't, this isn't a manifesto. This is this view says this isn't this, this doesn't impact the public world at all. This is like a little private thing that I practice by myself. Um, but Jesus does go on to say that you're salt and light, which we'll look at soon. So that does impact salt and light. You know, they're not great just by themselves. Their purpose is to do something for other people. <laughs> Privilege. Uh, that's that this sermon is just for special holy people like monks or nuns or people that live on an island by themselves. Only they can really do what this says. And the view I think we're going to find a lot of sympathy with is the final view, and that's promise. Um, anyone that gets close to Jesus, learns from him, follows him, 
has been transformed by his grace, you know. Um, we're not perfect, of course, um, but um, Jesus can help us to grow uh, in all sorts of ways um, where we start to actually see in our lives this type of fruit. So um, John Wesley is really helpful because he says that the Sermon on the Mount isn't commandments, they're promises. Yeah, they are promises for us, things that we can enjoy and things that we will hopefully uh, see in our life. So let's, uh, without any delay, let's let's read it. So um, if you don't have a Bible, it's on there. And um, this is uh, the first verse, and it says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. I do want to pause for a second because... um, we just skip past this first, don't we, and go straight to what he's about to say in a second. Um, I think we shouldn't because translations aren't really helpful because when Jesus says, um, when it says that Jesus began to teach them, and what it actually says is Jesus started to open his mouth and speak. And I think that's actually, uh, when I say what it actually says, that's what the, the Greek text says but we don't translate it literally because it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? He began to open his mouth and speak. So people just say, well, he began to teach. But I think we lose something when we get rid of that because um, this, isn't, um, this isn't just Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking. There's something where uh, I find when it describes that Jesus starts to open his mouth and talk, it's, it's pointing towards Jesus. It's saying that this isn't just a regular person. This is someone who we should listen to. Yeah. Um, In this sermon, Jesus never says, thus say the Lord. (laughs) He never says, Jesus never says, this is what God says. And Jesus, okay, don't get me wrong. Jesus does speak on behalf of God. You know, he is God. He speaks on behalf of God. Um, But he, 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 Jesus is um, he speaks as the very voice of God. That's what we should be hearing as we're reading this, as he begins to open his mouth. That's, that's, the, um, that's the point. And I think we're supposed to see another story. Go back to the verse one. Because um, this sound like a familiar story in our Bible. Someone goes up to a mountainside um, hears, uh, you know, uh, and brings the words of God to the people. Does that, does that sound familiar? Any story in the Bible that sounds familiar? Yeah, Moses. Do you remember Moses in the Old Testament? He goes up to a mountainside and he gets the law, doesn't he? Those tablets. And then he, he brings it down to the people. And uh, lots of people see these parallels in Matthew's gospel between Jesus and Moses. And I think they are there. But I do think there's a prime difference. You know, Moses went to the mountain and he, 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 um, the people didn't go with him, though, did they? <laughs> they couldn't come too close. They stayed down, and then Moses went down. But then we see with Jesus here, we read that his disciples actually come with him. They go to the mountain with Jesus. And presumably, everyone else does, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the crowds are amazed that he's teaching. And and that's the point that I want us to just, before we dive in, the point is that we are not distant from God. We're not called to wait at the bottom of the mountain we're actually invited to come with him and, and, and draw near and listen. And that's because, you know, everything Jesus is about to say here, he's saying, 
you can only do it if you're close to me, if you're by my side, if you, if you, you know, it's a metaphor, isn't it? If you're at my feet or if you're at the mountain with me, that's how I want you to live. I don't want you to live distant from me. I want you to live with me, close to me, because Jesus wants to work in you and create this fruit. And I think we talked about it this week in Connect, didn't we? Um, the fruit that Jesus wants to see us um, to grow in. So let's start the famous Beatitudes then. And um, began to teach, and he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what we've just read has become known as the Beatitudes. The reason we use that word is it comes from a Latin word, which just means blessed or happy. And there are eight blessings that Jesus says here, and they set the tone for the whole of the next couple of chapters. And what do they do as we just read that? They kind of confront us, don't they? And they cause us to decide, are we in? Are we out? Should I carry on listening to this sermon or should I leave? <laughs> should I follow this person? Or should I not? Um, and Jesus, you know, he's causing us here to reimagine a world that looks like this. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but when I read this, eight, you know, all these blessings, the eight of them, it's like a reversal or a contradiction of the world around us, the cultural values that you might say. Read it, you know, bless are those who suffer and mourn. Really? Blessed are those who are poor or poor in spirit. Really? Blessed are those who are humble, merciful, and make peace. Really? You know, if you look around, our, our world does everything it can to avoid suffering, to avoid pain, you know, to avoid being poor, to avoid being on the losing side and always fighting for justice and being humiliated in the process. We, our world avoids that. That's not what, you know... We, when we read what Jesus is saying here, we don't think these are necessarily good things, do we? And, we, you know, the people that he's talking about here, are they really blessed? You know, you don't say to someone who's mourning, you're so blessed, do you? You don't say to someone who's <laughs> poor in spirit, presumably, presu presumably because, you know, they've been financially poor or are poor financially, They've, be, you know, they've, they've come to rely on God even more, poor in spirit. You don't say to that person, you're so blessed. <laughs> you know, these beatitudes, these blessings, they're not really for the, what we would consider successful people are with the wealthy, you know, the people we would consider to be blessed in our own eyes. Um, they're, they're for the frequently rejected people, the, the, the people who live countercultural lives and and there's nothing wrong with wealth and having possessions 
And Jesus never says that. He, he, he says what's important is how we steward that and use that. Um, but, the, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the, are the meek. In other words, you're blessed if you totally depend on God and you've come to, to totally learn to what it means to, be, to depend on him. For everything in your lives, financially, materially, spiritually, um, to be poor in spirit is to admit our spiritual poverty, isn't it? It's to admit that we really need Jesus. And when things are really bad, you know, mourning, there's nothing worse than that. When life's at its toughest, um, these people turn to God and they receive this divine comfort. Um, and then, you know, the, the bit towards the end, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, you know, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And those who desire justice, they're really blessed. You know, they're so blessed because they're getting close to the heart of God, aren't they? They're getting close to what God really wants this world to look like. And those who have that pure heart, they will see God. In other words, they will see, uh, they'll get a close view and fixation on who God really is. They will see God. And there's, there is a sermon um, for each of these Beatitudes, isn't there? Um, which we won't be doing. Um, but I think out of all of them, one word that is the most important for us to kind of go away with is the word blessed or blessed, if you want to sound nice and spiritual. And blessed is, uh, it's, um, yeah, I don't know what different translations say different things. Again, it's one of those words I don't think is actually a perfect English word for it. Um, other people have suggested the word happy. So instead of blessed, you could say happy are those who. Um, but the problem with that word is happiness means different things to different people, doesn't it? Um, in our world, happiness is kind of about feeling, isn't it? It's how you feel. I feel happy. I feel content. Um, and if it is a feeling, it's something that we have to kind of maintain, don't we? Um, according to research, I got a bit down a rabbit hole this week, but um, <laughs> according to research, 44 is the age when you stop being happy <laughs> <laughs> on average. Or it's, it's a significant dip, uh, they say, on average. I know none of us are like that at all, but that's apparently the age where people start to have midlife crisis or they start to work towards happiness and um, fill, in, uh, fill in their lives. Um, but that is not for us, is it? And ha what happiness is not about feeling good, is it? But about being good in this sermon. It's about doing the right thing. It's not about feeling good all the time. And but more importantly, it's about being good based on what Jesus says and being shaped by our own relationship with God. That's goodness. And and being content and happy with what God's given us. And um, there is a difference, isn't there, between happiness and joy? I'm sure we've heard people talk about this before. And um, when I was uh, at school, a lot younger, I used to think, you know, when I get older, when I go to university, then I'll be happy. And I used to think, you know, if I get a girlfriend, then I'll be happy. And then I used to think, well, if I just get a job or a flat in Manchester, then I'll be happy. 
And then I used to think, <laughs> I'm sick of getting the stagecoach around Manchester. If I learn to drive and get a car, then I'll finally be happy. Um, I think I, I've learned the lesson now that um, you can never really be truly happy um, at it with all of these things because happiness and joy are totally different. You know, it can be a lovely day, perfect weather. You woke up in the morning, you had a bacon sandwich. You know, your day has started fantastically. Sorry if you don't like bacon. Um, and then Man United win. <laughs> you know, they win the derby. And your whole life is ruined. And you're no longer happy. And um, your happiness is gone. But joy is different, isn't it? Joy is always there. Joy can't be taken away from us. And even in the worst situations when Man United win, you know, joy is still there. We can still hold on to that joy. Until yesterday, and this is true, I always read these Beatitudes under like a dark cloud. What I mean is I read, you know, when Jesus is talking here, I used to think those poor people, you know, it sounds really horrible. Jesus is saying they're blessed, but I don't know. They're not kind of people I want to be around. They'll bring me down. (laughs) I read it differently now. These people are actually really joyful. (laughs) They're blessed. They're really happy. They're the most happiest people in the world. These people um, who have the least are actually the most joyful. They're the most happy. Those who are fighting for justice, that you know, those they're not proud that those who are meek, they've got I just picture them with these massive big fat smiles on their face. And they're happy, they're joyful. Don't feel sorry for them. <laughs> um you know, joy is, is is what it means to be a Christian. Um, and that's the one thing the enemy will try and take away from you is your joy. Um, he will try and rob it through, through any way. Put those thoughts into your head. of uh, You know, never uh, lose your joy. And the joy of what it means to be saved and in Jesus. Never lose that. It's the most important thing in the world. Um, about six years ago, I spent uh, not loads of time, just a bit of time in India. I went with Richard. And Richard went with me. So, uh, <laughs> I had to carry his bags. <laughs> uh, and... Um, you know, went to uh, North India, Punjab, and on the border of India and Pakistan. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have some connections with some churches there. And um, we went to some um, really, really poor, like, villages. And, um, you know, you know, you can picture them, the straw kind of roofs. When you walk in the house, it's like mud floor. And they were so happy, you know. They... We had to just refuse everything. They wanted to give us loads of food and drink and all of that, and we just had to refuse it. Um, but they were so happy. I remember going to another village. It was like a desert, but there was a church there, a church building. And we, we, we met the pastor, and I said, where do you live? <laughs> I'm inside the church. And, and he just pointed to his room <laughs> behind the pulpit. And it's where he and his wife and his kids shared a bed. And I can't tell you, the smile on his face that um, <laughs> he lived in the church was so, we were so happy. I mean, there are some pluses to that. You know, you can get up a bit later and then just go and preach. And you don't, the commute's a lot shorter. Um, but um, I think um, I kind of, I'm still wrestling with it now, but, you know, my Western mind, I just want to like give them money and, and so they can have a big house and, you know. But I kind of thought, at the same time, I don't want to change they're so happy. <laughs> I don't want to just make them like me because they're so happy with 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 um, the little that they do have. 
and it just really challenged me and and even even today you know still challenged if any of us have ever had a similar experience it's just so challenging and you kind of come back and you don't want to forget that but then you do you just go back into western life and watching football on the tv and yeah yeah so um joy and happiness and the people with the big fat smiles on the face um, are these people that Jesus is talking about. Um, it's important, isn't it? Jesus keeps saying this phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, their reward will be in heaven. What's he talking about here? We need to remind ourselves, um, and we do this constantly as a church, rightly, when Jesus talks about the kingdom and he talks about heaven, he's not just talking about some far off place we'll go to. He's talking about um, a future reality that's actually breaking into the here and now, yeah? One day, the kingdom will come in all its fullness. Jesus will come back. The world will be restored. But that's not like a, you know, a future distant thing. We experience it now. You know, earlier we prayed. You know, Steve had a brilliant testimony when we were praying for him. That's this future reality coming into the present. So when Jesus says they will be blessed, they, yes, there's a future reality to it. But there's something present about people now who are mourning can experience supernatural peace. They shouldn't in this world. They should not be experiencing that. But something about that future kingdom is being experienced now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I say, as I was reading this this week, I just started to change how I read this. And um, I started to think this question came to my mind. You know, what, what makes a good Christian? And maybe our standards are really different to what we just read to Jesus's standards of what makes a good Christian. I think if we're totally honest and don't give the right, the right answers that we know are right, we would probably say, yeah, our good Christian, you know, reads the Bible every day, prays, they give faithfully. They never swear. Um, they, uh, they always smile. They're always polite. And um, they say dang and darn. And these are like substitute swear words. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's a good Christian, isn't it? A good, good, happy Christian. Um, but Jesus seems to be saying here, I mean, obviously he doesn't say read your Bible every day because there wasn't a Bible. <laughs> so um, that's another conversation. But, you know, um, of course, he wouldn't say these things. Um, his true followers, Jesus is saying, are these people we just read. They're humble, they're meek, they're, they're, meek, they're content um, with the little that they have. They care about justice and righteousness. You know, they care about making the world right. And that's kind of, our, you know, a good Christian. What I want us to do now is just have a bit of time of talking and then praying, really, and then we'll end. Um, one scripture that will help move us on here is the next bit, really. And that really describes how we can apply what we've heard practically in our own lives. So from verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking about us, talking about his followers. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So just a question and then I guess time to pray together is what do these metaphors, salt and light, suggest about our role, your role in society? 
How might we be salt and light each day? So it'd be good if just to talk about that together and then hopefully that will lead us on to praying for one another in those situations. So if we could do that, that'd be wonderful. Thank you.